now am I on? All right. Well, guys, I know it's hot, and we have a lot of ground to cover today. So uh, we're going to pray like this. Dear God, be here. Fill in the gaps or maybe chasms between what I say and what you need people to hear. And if any of us go off the rails, point the fan in our direction. Amen. All right, and we're going to launch in. So today we are talking about a book by John Bunyan called Pilgrim's Progress. Now, for those of you who haven't been with us, we are in the middle of a series called HVAC, Habits, Virtues, and Character. Yeah, Habits, Virtues, and Character, where we are talking about um, a work of art or literature or music, something that has inspired in us a habit or virtue that has been formative to our um, life of faith. So uh, mine is Pilgrim's Progress. Now, has anyone here read Pilgrim's Progress? All right. So um, did they, what, what's Pilgrim's Progress about? Anyone? What, what's Pilgrim's Progress about? Like Jesus and stuff. Good, yeah. So um, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory about a man named Christian who leaves his home in the city of destruction and at the urging of a man named Evangelist, heads off on a journey to reach the celestial city via the narrow King's Highway. On the way, he sheds a heavy burden, that's an actual heavy burden, uh, meets two traveling companions named Faithful and Hopeful, uh, fends off attempted detours or um, attacks from people like Mr. Worldly Wise Man and Hypocrisy. Um, John Bunyan was a nonconformist British preacher in the late 17th century, um, and he wrote most of this book while he was in prison for attempting to lead church services that didn't follow the, the approved Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Um, it's considered a Christian classic. It's one of those things, once you read it, you'll realize how much it's referenced everywhere else. Um, and it, it really is a book that has a lot of truth in it and a lot of really powerful, concrete imagery about the Christian life. However, as others have touched on in this series, including Jason when he talked about um, Robert Capon and Steve when he talked about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I'm talking about this book because it has kernels of truth that have been formative for me. I am not giving you a blanket endorsement of this book. If you read it, and you can and should, it's in the public domain, you'll see that John Bunyan's King's Highway is quite narrow. Um, most notably, he has some things to say about the Pope that I'm not signing on to. So just know if you read it, like, He's old school, so um, just know that. Okay, um, but if you do read it, you're going to find a lot that's really great. And that brings us to today's content. Doubting Castle is the name of this chapter in Pilgrim's Progress that had such an effect on me. And at the Doubting Castle point in the story, Christian and his companion Hopeful are pretty far into the journey. They can see the celestial city. You really think it's going to happen. And then, in one of those plot twists that makes you want to like reach into the book and stop people, they decide that the um, ground is too rough on their feet, and they take a bypath meadow that's easier to tread. 
and it leads them into some land owned by a giant named Despair and his wife Diffidence, and he captures them. Bunyan writes, they, Christian and Hopeful, also had but little to say, for they knew themselves in a fault. The giant therefore drove them before him and put them into his castle, into a very dark dungeon, nasty and stinking to the spirits of these two men. Here then they lay from Wednesday morning till Saturday night, without one bit of bread or drop of drink or light, or any to ask how they did. They were therefore here in evil case and were far from friends and acquaintance. Now in this place Christian had double sorrow, because it was through his unadvised counsel that they were brought into this distress. He goes on, um, the castle is Doubting Castle, and, and the giant despair is trying to sort of beat these guys up as much as he can. Um, so it says, then he, uh, despair, falls upon them and beats them fearfully in such sort that they were not able to help themselves or to turn them upon the floor. This done, he withdraws and leaves them there to console their misery and to mourn under their distress. So all that day, they spent the time in nothing but sighs and bitter lamentations. The giant despair comes back the next day and suggests that the easiest course here is just to end it all, to commit suicide and be done um, with the struggle. Bunyan writes, then did the prisoners consult between themselves whether it was best to take his counsel or no, and thus they began to discourse. Brother, said Christian, what shall we do? The life that we live now is miserable. For my part, I know not whether it is best to live thus or to die out of hand. My soul chooseth strangling rather than life, and the grave is more easy for me than this dungeon. Shall we be ruled by the giant? Hopeful responds then by telling Christian <laughs> that um, death would be great, but he thinks suicide is a sin, so they're just going to land in hell, and it's going to be even worse. And then he goes on, and let us consider again that all the law is not in the hand of giant despair. Others, so far as I can understand, have been taken by him as well as we, and yet have escaped out of his hands. Who knows but that God, who made the world, may cause that giant despair may die, or that at some time or other he may forget to lock us in, or that he may in a short time have another of his fits before us and may lose the use of his limbs. And if ever that should come to pass again, for my part, I am resolved to pluck up the heart of a man, and to try my utmost to get from under his hand. I was a fool that I did not try that before. But however, my brother, let us be patient and endure a while. And the time may come that may give us a happy release, but let us not be our own murderers. The giant comes back again, makes more threats, and tells them to make sure they kill themselves quickly. At this they trembled greatly, and I think that Christian fell into a swoon. But coming a little to himself again, they renewed their discourse about the giant's counsel, and whether yet they had best to take it or no. Now Christian again seemed for doing it, but Hopeful made his second reply as followeth. My brother, said he, rememberest thou not how valiant thou hast been heretofore? Apollyon could not crush thee, nor could all that thou didst hear or see or feel in the valley of the shadow of death. What hardship, terror, and amazement hast thou already gone through? And art thou now nothing but fears? Thou seest that I am in the dungeon with thee, a far weaker man by nature than thou art. Also this giant hath wounded me as well as thee, and hath also cut off the bread and water from my mouth. And with thee I mourn without the light. But let us exercise a little more patience. Remember how thou playedst the man at Vanity Fair, and was not afraid of the chain, nor the cage, nor yet of bloody death. Wherefore let us, 
at least to avoid the shame that it becomes not a Christian to be found in, bear up with patience as well we can. This goes on for a while longer, and then Bunyan writes, well, on Saturday, about midnight, they began to pray and continued in prayer till almost break of day. Now a little before it was the day, good Christian, as one half amazed, break out into this passionate speech. What a fool, quoth he, am I, here to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that is good news, dear brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try. So he does, and there are a series of gates, and there's a little more drama as the giant tries to chase them, and spoiler alert, he uh, fails to catch them, and they make it back onto the King's Highway and continue their journey. The first time I read this book was with my house church. It's always good to read books that are written in this sort of language in a group. Um, and one of the first comments when we got together was, this chapter doesn't even make sense. How are we supposed to believe that a man lies in a dungeon for four days and doesn't notice that there is a key touching his skin? But that's when the light went on for me because I am the kind of moron who could sit in a dungeon for days or weeks or months and forget that I had the key. I could be so busy thinking about how stupid I was to get myself into a dungeon, how dungeony the dungeon was, how mean the giant was, that I never thought to get a key. And then we kept reading um, what, how did, how did Christian remember that he had a key? He prayed. What did they do from Wednesday until Saturday? They discoursed. Yeah. Right. Like, Christian and hopeful. Like, who, these are not newbies, right? These, these people are, like, pretty far on their journey to the celestial city, and they still spent four days discoursing before Saturday night about midnight, they decided to pray. And when they did, turns out they had a key. So um, I should say at this point that um, this sermon has been titled Doubting Castle because that's the chapter of Pilgrim's Progress that we're talking about. But this is really not um, a sermon about doubt. This is about the um, habit that this story developed in me. And that is really more about why Christian and Hopeful waited four days to pray. So there are two things that Christian and Hopeful did in this pre-prayer period, um, and that I think we do when we are holding off on praying for something, panicking and planning. Christian is mostly the panicker here. He is double sorrowful because he feels he's to blame for leading them there. He thinks they're better off just ending it. He falls into a swoon. I think we all know what panic feels like. I'm in a dungeon. Oh my gosh. I, it, it's a dungeon. It's dark. I have no food. I have no food. I have no food. I'm in a dungeon. Right? We can go like this for like a long time. The panic reaction is mostly about rehashing how you got there, either because you're so mad at yourself or because you're so sure it's not your fault and this is just unfair, and then also kind of just poking the wound, 
to remind yourself all the ways that it stinks where you are. Hopeful, then, is more of the planner. He's sized up the dungeon, and he thinks that if they can just hold on long enough, one day, who knows how, the door might swing open, the giant may die, and they will be ready. He will have in him the heart of a man, right? He reminds Christian how valiant Christian is, that Christian, too, is going to be able to make the charge when it's time. Even when the giant wants them to end their lives and Christian thinks that it might be a good idea, Hopeful has two reasons why not. Does anyone remember why Hopeful doesn't want them to kill themselves? Yeah. They'll end up in hell, yeah, so they'll just make it worse for themselves. And the other one? It would be really embarrassing to be caught in the dungeon, right? It would be really shameful for, he says, it would be really shameful for a Christian to be caught here. So in other words, we need to hide out. We don't want anyone to know we ever were in here. We'll be able to figure this out, and when we do, we'll be back on the king's highway where people are expecting to see us. So I think we do this too, right? We say, okay, I know I got myself into a little bit of a mess here, but I think I can fix it before God or anyone else thinks any less of me. I'm going to just not draw anyone's attention to this until I find a way to solve it. Sometimes we hang out with that attitude for a while, and then we switch to panic. Um, but either way, you know, it seems like we kind of go with one of those two approaches. And in either one, no one is talking to God. Hopeful is talking about God, but no one is talking to God. And as a result, no one is being reminded that God might have a solution. And that's what I really love about this passage. In a book full of all kinds of heavy-handed allegory, like God doesn't send, you know, an earthquake to crash open the dungeon or like talk in an audible voice with like here are the three things you need to do. All he does is cause Christian to remember what he already has, which is a key called promise. The promise that God's kingdom is enfolding and we get to be in it. We don't always need miraculous intervention. Sometimes we just need to let the promise wash over us again. And that's enough to get us headed out the dungeon door. So here's my habit, guys. I resolved about a decade ago to tell God the truth, especially when the truth is something like, hey, God, I have landed myself in a dungeon. The scary truth, the embarrassing truth, the I don't feel ready to deal with this yet truth, and the this thought is not totally formed, but I can tell I'm scared to talk about it, which probably means it's time to talk about it. And this sounds like it should be really easy. In my experience, it isn't. I think it's easy, instinctual even, not to lie to God, right? Like, I don't think most of us are like, hello there, God, just so you know, I had two drinks today. Definitely not four drinks, just the two. Okay, then, goodbye, right? But what we might do is ramble our way through a whole active prayer life about um, our roommate's cancer diagnosis and our job search and the most recent natural disaster and thank you for the sunshine and my family and that Pluto thing got me thinking about how you really are awesome. So great, God, amen. And we just never mention those four drinks and what else that might signal about what's going on in our life and whether it's a problem and whether it's anything we need to do business with. If you're in debt and it weighs on you, have you sat with God and the number? 
Not that he doesn't know, but do you put it in the holy space where you can talk about it together? If you have somebody in your life who you are supposed to love and who is instead annoying the crap out of you, do you tell God about the fissure? Not just try to gloss over it by like praying good things for them, but also just be honest with God about what you're feeling and what you're doing and how you should be handling it. If you read a story in the Bible and it seems like someone's getting a bad rap, do you pray, God, I kind of think I'm on Pharaoh's side here. For each of you, some of these probably seem like easy conversations. There are things that you wouldn't hesitate to talk to God about at all. But maybe some of them seem harder. Maybe there's something else you're holding back on telling God, a dream that seems too selfish to voice, a disappointment that you're afraid would be too ungrateful to mention, a failure too big to admit, a habit that might be moving towards obsession or addiction. Maybe your theology is shifting, but you're afraid if you voice it, you may come unmoored. Maybe it's time to admit that that thing you fought for and prayed for and felt sure God was leading you to is not the right thing. Maybe you need to tell God you're miserable and you're not sure why. Now, we know that God is omniscient and omnipotent, God only wise, etc. And if I asked you all, do you think that you are effectively keeping secrets from God, you would say, no, we know God knows everything. But there are still these topics that we skirt around in prayer, these doors that we'd rather keep closed, these things that we would rather not bring into the space where we sit together honestly with God. And I think that on some level, this is why. I've realized in my life that what makes this hard is that sometimes I'm afraid that God, God's kingdom, God's relationship with me is a house of cards. And that there are certain ideas that are too heavy that could make it all crumble. That it's fragile, that it's carefully propped up, that I need to protect this like happy space of Darcy and God together from things that might be too real. When I'm holding one of these like heavy thoughts, one of these clunkers, Right? I don't want to put it here because I don't quite know what will happen. I, for six years, have been carefully avoiding the story of Noah's Ark with my kids. I don't understand the story. I'm afraid that my kids are going to ask me really hard questions about why God did what he did and why a rainbow makes it all better. Um, That doesn't mean that I'm right. It doesn't mean that it's a good story and a true story and anything like that. It just means that it doesn't sit well with me. And when we get to that page in the children's Bible, I turn to Zacchaeus because I can explain the Zacchaeus story better. Now, one option would be for me to just keep reading the Zacchaeus story um, and think that it was kind of my problem to work out in my head why I had a problem with this story that God put in the Bible and that uh, maybe God wouldn't notice uh, that we kept on not reading it. But I think there is power in 
having the trust in God to take a scary idea, like I don't understand one of your stories and it kind of makes me queasy and I don't always understand you and I am afraid my kids are going to ask me questions I can't answer, and place it here. Because is the house of cards going to fall? The answer is no, because it's not a house of cards. It's a little bit more like this. It's a stone wall. Do we need to be scared to put a rock on a stone wall? No. If the truth is the truth, did I turn myself off here? If the truth is the truth, if this whole story about God's goodness, his power, his kingdom, his love, his plan to bring restoration and wholeness, if it's all true, and it is, then there's not really a rock we can put on it that's going to make it crumble. So we don't need to fret about what we put on God. What's scary to us, what's heavy to us, is not for him. And every time we let go of one of these rocks, every time we take a burden like this and we hand it over and we see God bear the weight of it and there's no cracks and there's no fissures, it's easier to let go of another rock, another thing that seemed scary to us, another thing that seemed big to us, another thing that we've been holding back on. We'll just take the bucket. So uh, I was driving to church one morning. I think it was last fall. And it had just been a particularly hard morning, getting the three kids out the door. There wasn't a lot of momentum. It was kind of a struggle. And as we were driving, one of my children became increasingly furious about the fact that she had not been permitted to stay home and watch television. And from the back seat, as I was cursing the fact that I had not yet had coffee, I heard her scream, I hate church. I don't think God is important, and I don't want to be a Christian. And I'm pretty sure that my heart broke. And then the guilt set in. What had I done wrong as a parent? What did I need to do differently to fix it? But I cut that voice off. And instead, I sat in the front seat and I whispered, Well, God, that just happened. just happened. And the response from God came really quickly. I know. But I'm big enough for that. I'm big enough for that. I'm big enough if she walks into her Sunday school class and repeats the whole thing to everybody else. I'm big enough if she really does turn 16 and think that. I'm big enough if she turns 35 and still thinks that. I'm big enough for whatever is coming so you can exhale. I could have skipped that conversation with God. I could have just pulled myself together, said, Eva, that's not nice. We'll talk about it when you get older. And we could have rolled on, and I would have survived. But I would have missed so much peace, you guys. I would have missed so much peace. Because what God reminded me wasn't just that I was going to get through that moment. It was that I was going to get through all the moments. That even if I needed to put something bigger than that on him, it was going to be just fine. We can pile on to God. All the stuff that is killing us, 
is not going to kill him. It's not going to kill his understanding of who we are. It's not going to kill our relationship with him. It's not going to kill, kill who he is. It's going to be just fine. And he is so much more able to carry the weight than we are. How would Christian and Hopeful's journey have been different if on Wednesday night, right away, they had said, God, we landed ourselves in a dungeon? They could have skipped the recrimination. They could have skipped the whole, you know, uh, discussion about suicide. They could have just said, God, we need help. And the key would have been there on Wednesday night. We hold on to these things because we're scared of them and we're scared to give them to anyone else. But what we should be doing is giving them to God in the first place. So, now we've come to the interactive portion of today's sermon. I'm going to ask some ushers to come up. I want you all to be able to get in on the fun. So, we have some rocks. We'll put the house of cards down now. So we have some rocks. And uh, the worship team is going to come back and play for us a little bit more. I'm asking you each to take a rock of your own. And I want you to think of something that you haven't been telling God. You can tell him that you're still mad about that thing that happened five years ago, even though you know you should be over it. You can tell him you're not sure the church is right about sex. You can tell him that you want a divorce. You don't get to get a divorce, but you can tell him that you want one. Um, You can tell him that you know you're really good at X, and you know that people keep on telling you that God's given you a gift, but you really hate it, and you're done, and you want to stop. You can tell him that when you take communion, it reminds you of lunch, and you have a really hard time concentrating for the rest of the service. And you can also tell him that you think this exercise is silly, Uh, and you kind of wish you'd stayed in the air conditioning this morning and not come here. God is big enough for that knowledge, too. Just bring it consciously into the space between you. So when you know what you have to say to God, um, whenever it is in uh, these next two songs, you can just come up, leave your rock, and I'm asking you to then exit quietly into the fellowship hall um, and leave this as a space for people who are still um, finishing up their thoughts. So with that, I'm going to turn it over.